Please listen carefully. G'day. You're listening to City Speak with Greg Van and Stephen Yarwood, a podcast about cities by people who love cities and want you to love your city too. This is a historic moment in a historic place because this is the first ever live City Speak performance that we've done. Yeah, so Do, this no, is... I just want to say, why aren't you looking more thrilled? Don't yeah. you think that's, <laughs> so, Makes you think noise. that's something fantastic? Was, you know? And yeah. I'd call it a live studio audience, yeah. which under COVID times means we've got one, <laughs> two, three, about five people. No, no, there's quite a few people. And we've yeah. got a really diverse range of people. Acknowledge all the councillors in the room, CEO and staff. Um, we've got some uh, students, school captains. Uh, from a number of schools here uh, and uh, a few community people as well. So yeah. that's what we're all about, is in getting people to learn to love cities because we love cities too. Exactly, yeah, yep. Yeah. And I shall start by saying also that we are not going to indulge in the what I call the seagull syndrome, which is flying into a city, doing your business all over it and flying out again, OK? We just want to talk about what we've learnt over the last day or so, what people have been good enough to share with us uh, in terms of their observations about the city and what it could be and how we might get there uh, and this sort of talk generally about a few ideas that we hope will help you as a community and uh, you as a council organisation to get to, uh, to the best Maribor you can get. Yeah, and I think that seagull stuff is also about cultural imperialism, which I think is a really important upfront thing to say. There's nothing worse than a guy from Adelaide turning up to Maribor and telling you how you should do things and then just nick off. And so it really isn't about us telling you and giving you all the answers. Uh, what we're really passionate about is doing the diagnostic. Um, you know, cities are like people. We've you know, mostly got 10 fingers and 10 toes. We're, we're all different and Maribor should be different to, to sort of every city in the world, um, but it's also about helping you to have a shared vision and be inspired and understand some of the things because as, as experts we kind of see studies and research and understand things and it's a lot of the time people will think they think the answer, but we could probably at least convince you of at least two things tonight that you go, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way and we saw a few councillors scratching their heads today. There's nothing, I don't know of anyone who actually likes it when someone comes up to them and says, I'll tell you what you should do yeah so so but what we do want to do is come up with some ideas and some thoughts and we hope that you will walk out of here uh feeling a little bit more informed and feeling a little bit more inspired uh to go out and do good yeah and you've got a list yeah and i've got a list so we, what, what we wanted to do for starters is just sort of talk about some of the things we've learned over the last day or so about what is important here or what what this city offers uh which actually helps define it uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about, well, knowing that, what about a vision? Stephen mentioned the idea of vision. And I think a vision is only valuable if it's sort of co-designed between the council, the community, the business community and all of the players, rather than something that, you know, some boffins in a room come up with. Um, but then we sort of think about, well, what are, the, what are the barriers to getting to some vision and what are the things that you might want to do about it? So let's talk about some of the things we, we learnt today that I suppose... Like, I've been here a few times before, um, but I've l really feel in the last I've got to know this place in a lot, lot greater depth. And so before you do, I want to explain how we saw stuff today, because I think that's really yeah, important. Yeah, it's a really good point. I feel especially privileged. You know, I've jumped on a plane from Adelaide. The fact that I can actually leave South Australia at the moment is a big deal, and South Australia is one of the few places that you can go to at the moment. 
and to be hosted by the mayor, the CEO, some great staff, um, but then also get that genuine Cook's tour of the city. You know, we literally got the keys to the city today and we did some urban parkour. We walked up and down streets. We went into some disused buildings. We went up old stairs. We made sure there was only a certain number of people per stairs, just in terms of risk and safety. There were holes in the grounds of some of the buildings, but we really got to see the heart and soul. And so that, I've got to say, whilst we are from outside of town, we love cities. And so we really got to have a genuinely good look today. And, and you know, I think th- sometimes what we can offer, not the seagull syndrome, but sometimes uh, people coming into a city see things a bit differently from people who experience it every day. So that's part of, I think, what we'll try and do now. So let's talk about... Let's talk about what we're actually talking about, not what we're going to do, okay? Righto, yeah, yeah. So some of the things we identified today, the obvious one is the rich stock of heritage buildings here. I would hazard a guess, and I I, I said to the Mayor at some point today, that you must just about have the biggest intact bunch of heritage buildings of just about anywhere in Australia. So that's an extraordinary asset that you, that you have as a city. And, and one of the great things about it is that because Maryborough was a, a much sort of bigger, more thriving place in the past, you got all these wonderful buildings at a time when they built wonderful buildings. But um, at the time, uh, sort of post-war, when they built pretty bloody ordinary buildings, you didn't get a lot of them. So and actually, often yeah. demolished the really nice buildings to, to put up the, the really crap right? ones as yeah, well, yeah. which is what happened yeah. in Brisbane and Melbourne and, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, and, so, and Perth in particular. So the you know, that is a wonderful sort of platform to start with. But so go along there with that goes the history, you know. So we talked about that history, but the history of manufacturing in this place. This is the manufacturing town. You know, you build our rolling stock, you build all of these things that you do. And manufacturing, thank you, COVID, is making a comeback. In our business, Ethos Urban, the industrial sector's gone berserk. And, and so Sunshine Coast used up five years of supply of industrial land in five months recently. Um, and that's because of logistics, because people ordering online, but also onshoring, they call it, so bringing back manufacturing into this country. And you guys are benefiting from it because you've got really good industrial land at really good prices close to a major market. So, yep. you know, and that's another beautiful thing. I can't actually read this, so I'm just going to make another one up that we haven't agreed on, and that's connectivity uh, as well. I think it's really interesting that the council owns two airports. What, it, what you do with them in terms of uh, partnerships and leasing them out or running them on getting... Um, Alliance Airlines has just opened, uh, a subsidiary of Qantas or a Jetstar or a Virgin, but also then the rail line, the bypass through Gympie. Uh, we're starting to see a shrinkage. You're within two and a half to three hours of a global city, an Olympic city, uh, and, and pending Olympic city in a COVID environment where people are jumping in their cars. Uh, the land is cheap enough here to do industrial, but close enough to actually make it still viable. So there's a whole connectivity thing piece that uh, we're seeing as a result of COVID, which you mentioned. COVID bump, that's the other thing. So I talked about the manufacturing implications of COVID, but everywhere in regional Australia has experienced what I call the COVID bump. People are buying property here in places that they never bought property before, often by text or whatever, you know. So, so, and I think you're all seeing that. I know you've certainly seen it in the Fraser case, but I think you're experiencing that now in Maribor. People are actually realising that there's lifestyles on offer in other places which are different to what they're, what they're living in the big city. And, and, you know, they're working from home. You can actually do your work sitting in Maribor 
You know, you don't have to be in, in downtown Brisbane. So, so you put all these ingredients into place and you've actually got this sort of formula that ha- I have this feeling that kind of now is Maribyrnong's time. We've got a whole lot of things going on here. Um, and I also think that, you, you're, and some of the councillors were good enough to share their stories, that, um, of course, uh, stable places can be conservative and, you know, people don't want change. But I think you've got to the point now where there are a lot of people who actually accept that change can be a really good thing for this community. So you've got a whole lot of circumstances now which go back five years you probably didn't have. Maribyrnong, this is your time, your yeah. time to shine, you know? And I think there's a couple of indicators for me um, there that are, you know, COVID is a big part of this, so it's not about a, a new normal, it's about a better normal, um, and there are a whole pile of risks about, you know, traffic is up, use of public transport is down, increased use of plastics, you know, loneliness, a whole pile of things that are associated with this, which is a real uh, call for good quality policy, good quality community collaboration and and those sorts of things as well. So um, there's a that really does drive this need. I also kind of have described that if you didn't want change, we wouldn't have been invited here. Yeah. And uh, because we kind of do kind of tell yeah. it how we did, and we certainly throw out some uh, grenades and we'll probably do that tonight. But also um, we wouldn't be here if the change was actually well and truly underway. So it's kind of like we wouldn't be here if you didn't want change and we wouldn't be here if the change was going at full steam ahead. And so um, we're not going to provide answers. We're just going to sort of challenge you to create this vision and then make it a collective. And I want to talk about... So I want to kick off on the vision stuff because, you know, um, I'm just going to say, you know, Maryborough 2030 or 2040, and I know a guy that does 2050. That's City 2050 is my consultancy. But it's really about having a vision. You can do a master plan. You can do a master plan. You can uh, plant trees. You can do things. But unless you've got a collective vision, as I said to the elected members today, um, is that until such time... As these community members, and I was, we were in Adelaide Street, uh, pointed and said, until this time as these community members get out of bed and do something different, it's just Greg and Stephen dribbling crap. Yeah. And so having a vision isn't just about the council having a policy. Um, and I'm going to look at the students here in particular. I genuinely believe that the vision for Maryborough should be taught in your schools. It's about kids owning it. And you're not kids, but it's about owning and understanding the future of this place. And if they do, they're actually going to be a part of it during their school years. They might even stick around because they, you know, actually care about the vision or subscribe to the vision. And we don't educate our people. We educate them on a whole pile of things. We don't educate them on how to be necessarily community members and part of the community and contribute to the evolution of a city, which is actually your home. It's not just your house. So, you know, we do home ec, but we don't do city loving if, if, if that makes sense. And I think, I think the vision thing is we're not here to tell you what your vision should be. The vision of this for this t- city will be co-designed by the people in the room, by everyone we mentioned has got a, got a stake in, in, and, and a desire to see the future Maribyrnong be the best it can be. But we know that there are some things in there that you'll want to see, you know, the, the use of the, the heritage buildings, the adaptive reuse and the issues that, you know, wouldn't it be great if all of those upstairs had a lot of people living in them and you could actually have a lifestyle in Maribyrnong 
which didn't depend on the car as the only way of getting to where you want to go. You know, you could walk to stuff or you could you could ride a bike or a uh, you know, electric scooter or whatever it is, you know. You've just so, kind of so, written the whole vision so, without so, even asking. No, 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 no. Don't, so all I'm saying is that we know it's clear that that's it's something you. You, want to, you want to adapt the use of the heritage buildings in the best possible way in your city. Yeah. So there, there you go. But you we know, do yeah. have some... Uh, we got a really strong sense from the administration, really strong sense from the, the council and the governing body, and we talked to some traders, etc., cetera, uh, of some bloody good ideas and things. Um, but also, there's, we can, we'll, we'll talk about car parking in a minute. But, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but you far off. No, no, well, I, think, I think so. The other thing is about making the city centre a really nice place to be for people, you know, so that at the moment you have traffic going down the main street which doesn't need to be in the centre of town. And it actually makes it not particularly pleasant to sit out on the, on the um, footpath and have a coffee when you've got, you know, vehicles going past at 60k an hour. So, you know, there are issues there. But the, the, the planning sort of language about this is making great places, you know. A great city is a city full of great places. You, what are you going to do about that? You know, it's more than just building a new footpath and putting in some trees. It, there's a big, much bigger piece about how you go about that. Great streets make great cities and great places make great cities. So how do you activate, how do you create an authentic street that has mental speed bumps where people want to slow down and experience? So we're talking about, you know, I actually said I wanted to make tonight's episode all about Adelaide street but we, we really are talking about this idea of and it has been something that the council has been throwing around about really concentrating on a street and proving that you can do it so there's this philosophy that small cities want to be big cities so they just do things all over the place but never really actually get the permeation of what they want to achieve but if you can concentrate on a street like adelaide street and turn it into an authentic place and it's funny that greg said focus on people because i know there'd be people in the room saying are you kidding me He's, they've flown up here and driven up here to tell us to focus on people. But you would be amazed at how the philosophy is that it's all about cars or car parks and those rather than uh, activating spaces with live music and um, outdoor seating and um, uh, play spaces. There's nothing in, in, on Adelaide Street that a child can climb on, for example, and stop. Uh, and um, outdoor dining, just out of interest here, who wants to have an outdoor dining experience next to a car park? <laughs> who wants to have an outdoor dining experience next to a 50-kilometre-hour speed limit? Yet we kind of say, if the cars aren't here, we're going to die. But more people want to spend more time and more money in places that are more nice. So, so you know, the idea of the, the, the city centre being a place that people want to go to, not go through you know, is, is a great way of thinking about this. So um, these are components that might actually end up part, being part of your collaborative vision. We're just throwing ideas out here. Yeah, pointers. Um, pointers, yeah, yeah. But the, the other thing I think is, is that um, oftentimes people are, you know, we've got to get this city going, what are we going to do? And people do a little bit here and a little bit there, sort of a piecemeal approach. You know, let's, let's put a few trees in here, let's try... I don't know, doing something in another part of town. But it, it really is, it, it needs to, you need to actually have, 
a systems approach. You know, these pieces are pieces of a bigger plan to get to get you to where you want to go. So, and, and and sometimes you can. I'm sure the elected reps here will know of things that somebody tried something, it didn't work, and then you sort of feel like you've gone backwards rather than going forwards because no one understood that was part of a bigger plan. You know, the history of Central Melbourne, which is now this wonderful place, was a carefully orchestrated process of doing one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing didn't just materialize overnight because by accident you know it was a well thought through strategy so i think that i the whole idea about uh, stephen said focus like the idea of that one of the one of our observations is that your city center is actually probably too big for your city now it's sort of come from a long time ago and so if you try and do everything in the whole city centre, it's very hard to sustain the energy and the success. So get focus in on somewhere and do all of the good things in that place, make it work, make it a great place for people and business and and, and the town, and then work build out from there. So that's another thought. I think. Yeah, and I, I want to touch on that and then also some of the, the placemaking stuff around the city systems thinking approach too. And it's something that I think was really great about spending time with you this afternoon is this idea that we think, we see things in our cities and think, I don't like that, so I don't want it. But I'm a big passionate believer in cities aren't actually all about you. In fact, they're actually a lot about these kids over here and about older people uh, sorry again yeah. older people in the community uh, people with disabilities indigenous people there's a whole range of it so if you don't like something it's not all about you but um, what I was really getting at today was this notion of an entrepreneurial ecosystem because young people play in rock bands wear jeans have electric scooters or electric skateboards want live music they want a live music city they want somewhere to go at night time but it doesn't have to always be about alcohol all the shops close at five the art galleries close at five Everyone goes home. It's not too many places to get a coffee after a certain amount of time. You can't get a euros at two o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, you don't have. You know, it's not necessarily safe at night because of you know lighting. There could be coloured lights all through the city. There's a whole range of different things. But then you start, and then you activate upstairs, and they want to sit on milk crates and reinvent the city and their own light. And they want to be graphic designers, and they want to use old buildings, um, but they're happy to use gaffer tape rather than actually building bringing up to a $2 million code. And that's just one example of one citizen and that system's thinking that's going to keep them in this city and create these small cottage industries that are going to activate these beautiful old buildings. That might be good for the young people, but I'd like to do all that too. You know? yeah, that'd yeah. be all right. Yeah. You know, that'd, that'd well, be that's great, why you know? we're friends, yeah. Greg. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, so there's some things in the way here. Um, using the upper stories of all those heritage buildings is actually a problem because there are modern codes for building and fire management and things that are now required uh, by state law and national law that you've got to apply to these buildings. And it actually makes it uneconomic in many cases to do anything with it. So there's a question about regulation and how you move from that regulation so a concept of, say, the council as a regulatory body to a facilitating body. How do you make that transition? Now, that's not easy, and you're not the only city and council that is dealing with this issue. But if we really want to unlock the, the potential you've got in these, this wonderful stock of heritage, then you have to get to grips with that 
change, that cultural change. Listen, it's something that we experience at the City of Adelaide when we want to activate the city and activate the old buildings. It's about the culture of the council. And so you make mistakes in an entrepreneurial ecosystem. For I've talked to the councillors about this already, um, and, but for those people that weren't there today, you know what? You want your council to make mistakes because if they're not trying new things, they're not making mistakes. Same like the, the younger people in the room. You're going to make heaps of state mistakes, but that's how you learn, you know? And there's no point having regrets. You know, obviously you don't want them to make stupid mistakes, but the, the building inspectors is the really good classic example of if it's not up to code, computer says no, lockdown. And as a result, the, co- the, the reputation of the council is tarnished because it's kind of like all the council wants to do is stop me, when it's often even state or federal legislation. What we've been talking about and getting some really great traction is we want the council, people to believe in the council in terms of providing solutions and supporting outcomes. And as I said, I've said it multiple times today, and it's just a metaphor. It's amazing what you can do with gaffer tape. And I'm talking about activation of places in terms of, of just, you know, taping up wires and cables and using extension cords and, and, you know, doing temporary stuff. And I've said this many times, but young people love this stuff they actually want old second-hand furniture and they want to live like they're on the edge they want retro they don't want really they don't want what we want they don't want the four or five star on the the luxury and all those sorts of things and so it's about understanding how flexible you can be in in changing the service delivery of an organization that gets the community to want to work with the council so don't be afraid to trial things you know trialing things is really valuable um Trials are, you know, they're low risk relatively because if they don't work, you just stop them. But in many, many cases, they do work and it changes the way people think about their city and that part of their city. So that's a really powerful thing you can be doing to help move your city from where you are now to where you want to be. Yeah, and placemaking is a big part of that. So um, placemaking is this idea that you can do things lighter, quicker and cheaper. So you can put in bicycle lanes with pot plants. You don't even have to paint them. You put them in with pot plants. And if they don't work and the businesses say, we're getting less trade, pick up the pot plants, put them in the next street and try them there. But often you'll see the traders will go, if you have less cars in this street, I'm going to make sure that I don't vote for you the next election. And you go back after you do the trial and they say, if you get rid of all of this infrastructure and bring cars back into the city, I'm not going to vote for you the next election. Because most people just think they know what works but they're not prepared to try and experiment. The other really good one is a parklet. Now, I'm going to remember which... Forget which which cafe... That that cafe, the Toast Cafe. There's a parklet out there. That used to be a single car park, and we observed two mums and four kids, trees, shade, etc., having an experience on the street where one metal box used to live. And it cooled the street... It brought people into the city. It helped them stay here. It gave them a positive experience. And you've got a great climate for outdoor dining and for outdoor experiences. And, and again, the, the, the evidence from oh, studies all over the place is that that one car park being used like that is going to generate a lot more money than it just having one car park there. Most cities think the answer is more car parking. Um, most of the time, that's exactly the wrong answer. You actually have a lot of car parking in this city and you have a lot of it in big car parks, which are mostly nowhere near full. Um, so it's really not about 
car parks being the answer. And I'll just tell a couple of stories. So in a Karunga Happy Road in, in, in Auckland, they were looking at changing up the, the mix of car parking, bike lanes and things and taking out parking and putting in other things. They surveyed the traders. The traders thought that 64% of all of their customers came to them by car. Then they surveyed the customers and the actual number was 17%. So people's perceptions about what's going on and what is actually going on are often quite different. Now, this is not to say, and this conversation quickly goes, I'm saying take out all the car parking. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But you can afford to change some of it to other things that create better places and more pleasant places for people to be without causing the impact that people are worried about, that if there's not a car park straight outside, I'm my business will fail. You know, So this has been proven in many places over time. So part of this storytelling, to get change to happen, you really have to appeal to the hearts and the minds. So the mind's all about, there's data that shows, you know, we can prove, we've done the analysis, but the mind, the, the, the heart is about the stories from elsewhere, inspiring tales of places that did make brave decisions, that gave it a crack, that put in trials that has transformed their city. Yeah, yeah. And so while we're going to uh, completely agree, while we're on the car parking thing, sort of borderline rant, I guess, from both of us, <laughs> because honestly, it's the number one thing. I've knocked on every single door of a capital city. I've knocked on every small business door of dozens of main streets. I've done this sort of consulting work in lots and lots of cities and it's the same thing everyone just thinks that more car parks are going to solve it so a couple of quick fun facts i'm not going to get it exactly right but on any one day in downtown maryborough you're probably only using about 60 i'd say 60 to 65 percent of the car parks and you the number of car parks you've got are designed for december 24th when, no one, when all the dads haven't bought their kids presents and the entire city goes nuts. So you plan your cities for peak parking periods that happen for five hours a year. As a result, we end up with all this bitumen. Now, bitumen absorbs heat and creates a heat sink, which in itself is really not a nice place to even spend time. You know, who wants to have an outdoor dining experience on a 30-degree day next to a 40-degree heater? You know, it's that sort of stuff that we go, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. And also, um, people driving past businesses on Adelaide Street are not spending money. You actually want people to park and want to spend more time there and walk further. Firstly, we're suffering from an obesity and diabetic, diabetic epidemic and just walking half an hour more every day is going to make you fitter and healthier and make you live longer. And that's our responsibility as placemakers and city people. It's not about the gym. It's about building healthy communities. Secondly, people are going to walk up and down the street. They're going to meet each other and say, hi. They're going to talk to people. They're going to have the social interactions and those human experiences and you know, be asked how they are and all those sorts of things. Thirdly, they're going to walk past more businesses, which in itself is the kind of the point of all of this. And yes, some people need to come in in their cars because you can't carry a bag of concrete home. And some people need their cars because they're running a business. Some people or need... The, they're older and they, you know, yeah. walking is a challenge, yeah. so you need... That's the, the, okay. Yeah. But if 5 or 10% of people rode their bicycles... Another 10% lived in downtown and you created a higher density, medium density urban environment. And then another group of people used a bit more public transport. All of a sudden, you'd have 30% more car parking spaces available for those people that do need to drive. And it's really about integrated transport. It's about choice. You know, these guys here in the uniforms, 
they're either going to spend their first, first 30 grand, 20 grand on a car or they're going to do it on a startup business and activating an upstairs of a heritage building in the city. Which one do you want them to choose? Story today. So CEO Ken, who was on our workshop today, went into a shop on a spur of a moment and bought some piece of um, antique stuff that he would never have found if he hadn't been on his on his feet walking, you know. So and the evidence... A big grin on his face, yeah, too. Yeah, no, he's, he's pretty afternoon. happy with it, too. Look <laughs> at him, you know. But the... Um, yeah, like, just let us know when you've settled things at home, mate, and we'll release the podcast, all right? Yeah. It's probably a so thumbscrew anyway. Um, but, you know, so, and again, there's a mountain of evidence that shows people walking and people riding bikes actually spend more on average than people driving cars past places. So that's the, the actual information. That's the data tells you that. But the stories tell you the real, the, the real human part of this. So let's go, let's go on to that whole question of, how, you know, the regulation to facilitation. It's, it's a tricky thing, this, but we really need to get our heads around as a community. How are you going to collaboratively work together to, to achieve that change. Yeah, and what was really effective about today was actually first time in Yonks that you had the planners and the, the, the engineers and the, the mayor and the CEO standing in a place talking about it. And so this idea of getting out there and getting people out, getting the community person out there, co-creation, so you really want the small businesses to be paying, putting in money for the parklets, you really want the council to be providing the landscaping or, or, or making a contribution to it, um, but standing in the place and actually working out the problem and, crea- and finding the solution rather than just doing a desktop, no, this doesn't tick the box, uh, is a big part of it. And it's not really just pointing at the council. It's about creating a community that wants to work together. Yeah, and, you know, the answer to... You know, what's going to make Maribor is the council should do this. Well, you know, that's the history is that people sort of go, you know, the council will fix it. But it's in everyone's hands to do this, isn't it? You know, so that don't don't just sort of sit around and say, well, government's got to do it for us. You know, you've got to be part of doing it. Yeah, and yeah. I'll talk directly to the mayor here. And certainly when I was Lord Mayor, you have that experience of being able to walk into the street and people say, you should do this and you should do this. And, you know, for me... It's, it's, I got to the point where I said, ask not what your city can do for you, but what you can do for your city. Yeah. And, you know, my response just got to the end. I was like, you can do it too. Yeah. And there's another concept, way of describing it is um, big council, small community, or big community, small council. And you don't want a small council that's shaved back, but you want a council that's, uh, that's enabling the community to create the future not a cultural expectation where the council needs to do things for you. And, and so there's a cultural change that comes with that uh, as well. So, so like, we've talked a lot about the sort of things that you, you know, might think of as a vision and the sort of things you might want to do. But one of the things that we really want to kind of get down to is that you don't just do one great big plan and try and do 25 things all at once because the, the future, that, that sort of approach will collapse under its own weight. You know, you won't possibly be able to do everything you think should happen everywhere all at the same time. So it's really a question of then of what are the priorities? Where do you land on trying to move your city to where you'd like to be the best possible future for your city? And so there's a few ideas about that that we could talk about. I wanted to talk just very quickly about the difference between 
predicting the future versus creating the future because I think it's very important in an era of globalization where we think that smart cities and big companies are going to create us and we're all part of a machine and, and all of that sort of stuff and it can actually be incredibly intimidating for me um, it's really important that you don't just say but people will always drive cars because they're not by the way they're going to be an autonomous neural network of um, electric machines of all shapes and sizes so just like chuck that one out but also the best one i like is maribara's population now you could get a demographer in who could track what's happened track what's happening and say track what's the what's kind of likely to happen and say the population's going to be x that's just a load of freaking crap it's actually up to maribara to determine its population and you do that through housing types housing affordability, um, housing choice and diversity, quality of your life, how easy and cheap it is right up to even, not saying you should, but a good example is if you subsidised flights to and from Brisbane, it would just change. I'm not saying you should do that, but that's going to change the population prediction. What about industry? What what industries you get when it's an hour and a half by high-speed rail within 20 years? There is no reason that a demographer would say Maribara is going to be 35,000 people or 40,000 people when it could be 100,000 people. And I'm not saying you want 100,000, but the point is don't predict the future, create the future. And having a vision might not always come to fruition, but if you have a vision, it means that developers, local, national, international, state government knows that, that this is what you want and they can start thinking about it and programming it. You can have a conversation with your adjoining councils around high-speed rail and you can, you know, if you don't articulate this in your aspired preferred future, you can't expect to have a conversation with anyone who's going to create it. It's like, you know, if you don't say, oh, I want to be super fit and healthy, you're not going to kind of go and talk to a personal trainer. And so it's really about you determining what you want. Don't predict the future. And engineers in particular are, oh, you yeah, know, that's not... And traffic management and all of those sorts of things. You know, you can choose. If you, all the car parks fill up, you can also choose to not have more car parks so that people have to either share cars or ride their bicycles or just say, bugger it, I'm going to live ab- above here. And so you change people's decisions. You don't do what they tell you to do because they only know what they've already done. And that would just mean being stuck in the past. So let's just um, try to start to wrap things up a bit to sort of go, well, where would you start? You know, well, a few key things to me clearly is that you just need to think about how you're using the space between the buildings, which we sometimes call the street. We've got cars, you know, dominating some of these places. We've got a lot of parking but we don't have a lot of vegetation, we don't have a lot of sense of naturalness, they're relatively noisy. What, what would you like to do about that? That sort of whole piece about infrastructure and um, placemaking is, a, is an important component. Find a bit where you think this is the first place we're going to try this and do it really well, really high quality. The second thing is about um, the innovation and investment. You know, is the council as a, as a corporate body going to find ways of leveraging the investment into places that it wants to see? And how can you go about that? And, and dealing with the regulatory constraints that you've got to this now. So that last part, and the last thing I think is that whole piece about the cultural change in an organisation. How can the council, how can the Chamber of Commerce, how can the community be facilitating the change you want rather than regulating and stopping the change you want. 
Yeah. So there's a few ideas just to throw out for yeah. starters. I've got a couple more. One that I have not mentioned at all today. haven't even talked to Greg and it's really stupid, but we'll get to that in a minute. The other one is programming. I think it's really important. What we're very good at is just built like the, all the, uh, the capital works, all the footpath stuff. You know, it's great. Probably a lost opportunity to have wider footpaths and, you know, the two cafes of, uh, in that downtown have got slightly larger footpaths where there's no car park and it's where people are gathering. So go and have a look at those two spaces and, and think about that. But it's the placement, it's the programming of place. There was live music today. It was great. Mm. Um, but also how do we actually activate the city? I haven't actually mentioned it, but I think the big difference for me, cities are like have personalities. They're either industrial cities or commercial cities like a New York or a, you know, a, a residential city to a certain extent like Adelaide or a, you know, a Hobart has a certain style. And you've got a really interesting dichotomy between uh, Maryborough and Harvey Bay. And for me, Harvey Bay is going to be, over time, is going to be your holiday, beach resort, primary tourism, baby boomers, all of that sort of stuff. Maryborough has got the bones of what is actually the cultural city it's got the museums the art galleries the theaters it's going to have the the great um, main street the the architecture the old buildings the entrepreneurs like the young people you'd you'd honestly have to say my gut feeling is they're probably going to want to activate those old buildings and create the new startups the the design businesses and whatever and so there's that difference between you know if you're going to build like a great library for example I'd make it here. I'd make the, the arts, the culture, the style, the fashion, premium. This is the premium product. Uh, Harvey Bay is not, not premium, but it's not got that. It's the, I don't know, it's the difference between Melbourne and Sydney. I think Melbourne's way classier than Sydney. I don't know. <laughs> you know, Sydney's got a, a harbour, beautiful beaches and stuff. Melbourne's got the art, the culture, the sport, and all of those sorts of things. So that's, that's it. So let, let's, I think we start wrapping There's up. So one we, more. Yeah, I know you've got one more. Yeah, yeah. Flags. We haven't even talked about this. It's a really crazy one, but the flag of Amsterdam is a great example of rallying community support. Haven't asked anyone today, but I'd love to see the flag and see whether it's cool or clunky and so the idea of having the, the a, mayor shaking his head i think it's not cool. it's not cool yeah, yeah. so it's on the clunk, clunky yeah, side so I think, you know, a yeah. cool basic flag there's a whole pile of literature around this is about rallying community support it's a brand as well so does the council brand look old and crusty and conservative or you know those sorts of things so it's Food for thought. It's a really interesting topic about a city flag and how it can mobilise love for a city and connect people to urban spaces and build people's shared vision for the future. So that's just a crazy one there. There is the last thing. If we're wrapping this up and saying goodbye to our listeners, um, I'm particularly hoping that some of the people listening to this are residents and traders of Maryborough and I'm just going to say I'm hoping that's the case because I'm going to ask every single person in this room to encourage their friends and family, you know, students, etc. Give this a bell. Tell them there's some, there's some crap about flags and some stuff around rock stars and entrepreneurs and jeans and electric scooters and all of those sorts of things. But that's what we're here for. We're here for you to call for a vision, support the council in doing it, and back them to the hilt. And so I'd really encourage you, uh, the first thing you could do is share this podcast and make sure that everyone gets a listen so they get where we're coming from and they get 
when the council gives it a red-hot go, makes some mistakes, but is giving it a, a good old crack. Mm-hmm.